0: Welcome to today's episode of Getting to Know You. I'm your host, Cameron Edward Benton, and on today's episode, I have the great pleasure of introducing you to Chris Orozco. Chris is a shadow integration coach and the creator of Operation Maksha, where he often delivers his shadow integration teachings through clever memes, or you can find him on YouTube delivering deep dives into shadow integration topics, how to integrate the different you know, polarities of ourselves as human beings the light and the dark. Um, Chris is an absolutely fascinating human being. We met each other after a party out in Austin, Texas, and just really started jiving. Um, We dove into a lot of complex. Uh, intellectual conversations emotional conversations just about the individual human being as well as the collective as a whole and near the end of the conversation I just was like hey you know would you mind you know jumping on the show that I hadn't even created yet and he was more than generous to come on and we just had an awesome time um, really talking on this episode uh, we start off with just you know what is shadow integration the difference between that and shadow work which is kind of a popular zeitgeist phrase uh, during our current time and then we dive into really how the work applied to him him Sharing his personal journey from you know being born and raised as a Jehovah's Witness to leaving the church to being kicked out of his home, uh, you know moving around from house to house in Orange County, uh, eventually you know having a mental breakdown, and then you know discovering self so, himself through shadow integration and rebuilding his psyche in a really really powerful way that is you know, demonstrated through the proof of his life as a really powerful and awesome thriving human being. Um, beyond that, we dive into his love of anime and really how that ties into both his personal life and his work with shadow integration. Um, so like I said, Chris is a you know wonderful, open-hearted human being. You can find him on Instagram or YouTube at Operation Maksha. And without further ado, here is getting to know Chris Orozco. All right, so today on the show, we have a Shadow Integration Coach, Chris Oruzko. He's also the owner and operator of Operation Maksha, which you can find on YouTube and uh, through his channel on Instagram. Chris, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? What, what is Shadow Integration Coaching, and what in the world is Operation Maksha?
1: Nice. Cool. Well, first of all, I'm stoked to be here. It was stoked <laughs> to connect with you. I'm glad we get to do this. Same, man. And let's see. So I guess I'll start with the first question, like what is Shadow Integration? Mm -hmm. So first of all, it's important to explain what the shadow actually is, and it's the place where all the thoughts and feelings and parts of your personality you wish you didn't have Mm -hmm. go when you push them away. Mm -hmm. So you have a thought you don't like, you have a feeling you don't like, you have a part of your personality you don't like, and naturally we just push that away. That's what we do. And Mm the only problem is that doesn't really go anywhere like most people think it does. They think it disappears Mm -hmm. when you push it away. But it actually just goes into this kind of like existential trash can known as the shadow. Mm -hmm. And the reason that's a problem is because all those little parts that you push back there are still alive. They're still Mm -hmm. doing things. They're still informing your opinions and perspectives and guiding your behavior. Only problem is they're doing it from a really freaked out perspective because they're the parts Mm -hmm. that were too scared or too in pain or too overwhelmed or whatever to deal with. So Mm -hmm. you push them away. So it's literally the... The least functional parts of your personality running your life from behind the scenes, yeah. And so, shadow integration is—it's taking a look at all those parts that you've thrown away, figuring out what they were trying to accomplish, and ultimately integrating them back into your psyche and into your life by helping them accomplish that same goal in a much healthier
0: way. Got it. So, within shadow integration, and this is one of the things I think that we we originally talked about when we first met was. I noticed the distinction with you with the term shadow integration versus shadow work how do yes. you kind of um, I would say like describe the differences or make the make the exception for that
1: yeah so it's funny this is actually uh, I think I came up with this distinction I haven't heard it before so if someone else said it before I don't know but yeah, I haven't
0: seen it elsewhere either so
1: okay great because I hear a lot of people talking about shadow work you know it's it's, yeah. it's become popular within the last maybe three and a half
0: years or so yeah it's in the zeitgeist for sure.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's it's become really popular. But the only problem is that, like there's honestly not that thorough of an understanding of it. Because something mm-hmm. that happens a lot of times is when something becomes popular, people will sell it even though they're not really good at it because they want to be relevant. They're like, yo, this thing that's really big and popular, like I do that too, even though they don't really fully understand it. And so there's a lot of there's a lot of miscommunication, there's a lot of misunderstanding, and and people just don't really know better. So a lot of it's pretty innocent. Mm-hmm. And so I've looked at the way different people were talking about shadow work. And I was like, yeah, okay, that's not really shadow integration, but that is doing something. Hmm. And then that kind of made me aware of the distinction. And for me, the distinction is shadow work is anything that allows you to become aware of your unconscious material. Hmm. You know, like yoga can do that. Like you're in a pose and you start to become aware of your thoughts and feelings, sitting meditation, you're breathing, you start to become aware of your unconscious or subconscious material. Talk therapy can even do it, breath work, all these Mm -hmm. different things can help you become aware of what's in your shadow, but they don't lead to integration because Mm -hmm. integration takes all that a step further and it adds an analytical component of not only being aware of your stuff because it's it's good to be aware of your stuff. Like that creates more internal freedom. It allows you to behave in new ways, even though your mind's telling you to do all this other stuff and it is liberating and it is valuable, but but integration goes just a little bit deeper. And adds the analytical component and asks, okay, there's all these different thoughts in my head. There's all these different parts of myself. Let me ask why they're doing what they're doing. And let me see Mm -hmm. if I can find out a healthier way to do what they're doing. And the reason this is important is because when you get down to the very bottom and you find the reason that a part of you exists. Mm -hmm. And like, let's say an example from my life is I used to push people away because I was afraid of abandonment. And it sucked because I wanted to be close to people, but I kept pushing them away. I would either piss them mm-hmm. off or I'd ghost them or I'd do something to make sure that they didn't want to hang out anymore. Mm-hmm. And I knew that that was because I was afraid of abandonment. And so I was like, okay, all right, part of me that's afraid of abandonment, like I'm, I don't want to be abandoned either. I'm actually on mm-hmm. your side. I want to figure out a good way to not be abandoned or to be able to deal with it if I do. So let's mm-hmm. let's deal with this. So I talked to that part of me and I was like, all right, how do we deal with this? First of all, it was like even if we do get abandoned, I'm gonna have your back. I'm gonna love you no matter what, so you don't yeah. have to worry about a loss of love because that's never gonna happen.
0: And just and to interrupt real quick, that is that part of you in that moment. You, that's I say Chris's objective consciousness, which is a whole I to say rabbit hole or whatever, but like your your awareness consciousness, right? That you're identifying self talking right. with this abandoned part. So you're letting the abandon like the part that's afraid of being abandoned, let it know that you're gonna love that, not sort of the abandoned part telling you you're gonna be loved. Is that right?
1: Yeah, exactly. It's me telling it because a lot of times what happens is because a lot of these things get formed when we're kids. Mm -hmm. And so we think if we get abandoned, like we're, we're, abandonment is from our parents. And so if Mm -hmm. we get abandoned from our parents, we think we're going to die. Usually Mm -hmm. if you imagine rejection or abandonment and you try to think beyond it, there's usually just like a blank blackness there. Mm -hmm. And most people don't know how to think beyond that. And so when you talk to that part of yourself and it's like, hey, you know, like I know back in the day, if we got abandoned, we might've died, but like, you don't have to worry about that anymore. Because if we get abandoned, I'm an adult now and I can take care of whatever we need to take care of. And I'll also take a look at red flags and find the people that are likely to abandon me or that are likely to not treat me very well. And I won't invest in those people. I'll only invest in the people that I think will actually treat me well and not abandon me. But then if for whatever reason they do, I'll still have my back. And the reason that's different than just becoming aware of that is you could be in a relationship and if all you're doing is shadow work, you're aware of your fear of rejection or abandonment. You're aware of your desire to push people away and you just hold it while acting differently, which again is liberating and amazing and transformational. However, with shadow integration, you stop being afraid. There's there's nothing to hold anymore because the part of you that was afraid of it, you've met its emotional needs by letting it know that you're going to love it no matter what. And you've met its practical needs by being like, yeah, you're right. I don't want to get abandoned. So let me look out for the best people to invest in. And then when you do that, that part of you relaxes and it goes, oh shit, someone's taking care of me. Like the stuff I was worried about is actually being taken care of in a healthier way. So I don't have to worry anymore. And then that part of you just changes on a fundamental level and stops creating negative emotion for you to have to hold and be present with.
0: Right. So so what I'm what I'm hearing from you is with that, you are essentially going to this part that's afraid of you know, being abandoned and you are not simply even just meeting the needs in that moment with comfort or kind words, but it's also like, you're going like, Hey, what is the sort of practical application or um, action plan that I'm going to take to make sure that those needs are, are not just sort of emotionally taken care of right now, but are practically taken care of, right? You mentioned the, the aspect of basically like, hey, I'm going to look out for these particular traits in people who have abandoned me or don't treat me well. I'm going to actually move towards the people who who show me that level of compassion, right? So you're you're, you're not even just becoming aware with it and sort of acting on it, but from what I'm hearing is you're also like developing this like relationship with it. And um correct me if I'm wrong, but my guess is it's probably not simply right a a thing of like, oh I've I found this part and now I'm integrated. It is kind of like this ongoing relationship uh over time. Is that how it kind of works for you?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And so I've been teaching it for about 10 years now. And the biggest distinction I see in people that like get a few breakthroughs and get some work done versus people that can completely take control of their lives is whether or not they really personify the parts of their mind and treat them like yeah. people. And the beginning of the, the relationship-building aspect is interesting because most people will go into it with like, oh, this part of me has been so mean to me my whole life. It's sabotaged mm-hmm. all my plans. It's fucked up my relationships. Mm-hmm. It's done so many things. It's caused me harm. They're mad at it mm-hmm. without realizing that they're the ones that have actually been abusing it. Yeah. And that's why it's misbehaving. Yeah. So if yeah, you go yeah. in there with
0: resentment, it's, it's not
1: going to work. You have to go in there with an apologetic heart and make mm-hmm. amends
0: to a part of you that you've been abusing. Yeah. Yeah. This is resonating super, super hard for me um, because I, I essentially, I did this type of work without realizing it was called shadow integration um, or knowing that particular name where I have a friend who, um, friend and mentor who is a, who's a Zen priest yeah. and, we were uh, hanging out in Shambhala and he's like, Hey, yeah, I would love to like mentor you. So we um, started working with stuff and he led me through hypnosis and um, got in touch with my heart. My heart's name is, is Abigail. Um, people ask me, is that the name you gave your heart? And I'm like, no, that's literally like her name. Like, it's this personified part. And we have a really great relationship, right? And then I was like, there's this other part of me though, who was like, sort of, we got introduced to who was like, didn't want to talk, didn't want to deal with anything. I was okay. We're like, leave it alone. And then when I was in at lost lands uh, this past year, I was sitting there and I kept like wanting to get more and more relationship with this part. So I would start to just kind of listen and connect and figure it out. And I'd realized that it was the part of me that, you know, in my words at the time, it was like scared, right? It was the part of me that was afraid to take risks. Whereas my heart is like, I want to jump into these crazy things and do this thing. And there was this other part. And I was, to your words, like abusive towards that part, because I felt like that was the part that was slowing me down. That was the part that was um, preventing me from growing or keeping me from the things that I wanted. And in retrospect, I was like, oh, this is like the part that like keeps me alive. Like this is the part that makes sure I have enough money for this thing. This is the part that allows me to like make sure I'm, you know, not doing something completely assinine and get thrown in prison or like, it's the part of me that wants to keep me safe. And like, how do I develop this relationship with this part so that not even just with me, but also like guiding that relationship between my heart and this other part of myself so that I'm able to move forward much better because often what was happening for me was I would move forward, like, like you said, trying to push this part into the shadow and sort of go beyond what was the safe limit for me and then have this sort of like nervous system retraction um, mm-hmm. that was going completely against everything. And I would kind of have to start at ground zero, right? And it was this constant back and forth motion versus as I've developed that relationship with my own boundaries and my own limits and needs and things of that nature, I'm able to move forward at a much more smooth pace.
1: And that's so important to acknowledge because that's one of the biggest kind of problems with not acknowledging the shadow, especially if you want to do spiritual practices like affirmations or Mm -hmm. mantras or anything like that. It'll actually put you in a conflict with the parts of you that don't believe it, right? Mm -hmm. So if you want to use an affirmation of like, everybody loves me, but deep down you believe nobody loves me. Mm. Every single time you affirm that the part of you that is invested in believing that nobody loves you is going to be like, no, that's not right. We can't believe Mm. that. You told me to never believe that. You told me to believe nobody loves me because if I believe that, I'll be okay. And so it actually has to fight back to keep you safe. And then if what I did when I first learned like the secret or whatever was I was trying to be positive and then all my other like parts were like, hey, we don't believe that. That's not true. That's a dangerous thought. Mm -hmm. And it put me into this conflict that I already had anxiety, but it made my anxiety so much worse because I was constantly Mm -hmm. fighting myself. And it wasn't yeah. until I acknowledged the shadow and learned how to work with those parts and form the relationship that my anxiety went away. I could make sense of things. And I finally decided to, yeah. or I finally was able to develop a sense of
0: inner peace. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that might be like a great segue to, um, to asking the question. It's like, how, how did you get into this work? I mean, you've been at it for 10 years. Uh, you definitely seem quite the, um, I hate you. I, Tepid to use the word master, but very skilled and adept with this type of process. And, um, so yeah, how did you, how did you first get into this work? How did you stumble into it or find it or seek it out or how did it find you?
1: Yeah. So first of all, thank you. Um, I do actually consider myself really fucking good at it. And I think a part Mm -hmm. of that is because I developed it as a survival mechanism. I -hmm. developed it to save my life. Hmm. So I'm 36 now and 10 years ago when I was 26, uh, you know, i had had a long series of mental health problems ever since I was a little kid. I had PTSD, anxiety, paranoia, rage, like whatever, like you name it, you know, I was all fucked up mm. and I tried to fight it for a long time, Tried to create stuff, Tried to be a good dude. But eventually all of it, you know, that conflict I talked about before, it started to kind of swallow me whole mm-hmm. and it started to really scare me because I was having intrusive thoughts of actually hurting people that I cared about. Oh, wow. And so I thought I was going on this downward spiral to becoming some kind of monster. And so I was like, fuck, I can't let that happen. I have, I have, two, I have two options. I either end mm-hmm. my life or I commit myself to a mental institute where they can stop me from hurting people. And I was dead serious. I thought those are my only two options left. It was, it was a horrible mm-hmm. time in my life. However, yeah. I was living in San Francisco with three witches. And <laughs> one of them understood shadow integration. And which is funny because she doesn't practice it now. None of them do. Mm-hmm. But... Either way, they still taught me to practice. And so she introduced me to a few core ideas. And one was, you know, first thing she said was, Chris, you're not broken. You're just taking really poor care of yourself. And mm-hmm. for some reason, that clicked in my head. I was like, wait, what do you mean? Tell me more. Like, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. And then She kind of went further and she's like, you're not actually just one thing, right? Like you're a multiplicity of things. You have a bunch of different mm-hmm. parts. And they vary in degree of health depending on how well you've taken care of them. If you haven't taken care of them, they're going to get unhealthy, just like anyone, just like anything. But if you do take care of them and you have a loving relationship with them, they will become healthy. And for whatever reason, I just believed this. It was just like the light went on in my head. and I was like, yes, that's it. That makes perfect sense. That's the thing. Mm-hmm. And so she gave me a copy of this book called Embracing Ourselves by Hal and Sidra Stone. And honestly, I only read half of it. It's the only book I've ever read on shadow integration, and I just read half of it. I read enough to understand the core components of what the parts are, how they work, the fact that they have needs, and if you meet the needs, they'll become healthy. And -hmm. so I was like, "Great, that's all I need to know." So I just kind of got to work, and I spent, you know, the next couple of years just completely devoted to that practice because I felt it working. I I noticed it having impacts on my life and on my relationships. Mm -hmm. And within about two years, I kind of looked around, and all the people that I looked up to and respected were suddenly asking me for advice. And I was like, how did, the fuck, how did that happen? Like mm-hmm. I was the most messed up guy I knew. Why are all you guys asking me for advice? Mm-hmm. And then it kind of dawned on me that my mind had turned from a place of perpetual torture and suffering yeah. into a source of inspiration and insight that could actually help other people. Mm-hmm. And with how fucked I was before, I was like, that's incredible. I should show people how I did this. And so I started kind of picking apart my own thought process, writing it down, making a framework out of it,
0: and then started teaching it. Wow. And that's, I have so many questions that have, that came up from that. Cause it's, I mean, such a fascinating story. Part of which is that, uh, knowing you, like you were raised as a Jehovah's witness. Um, and there's, there are a few things I want, would love to kind of get your take on through those. One of them, which, you know, kind of amazed me is that the people who you end up, I want to say like finding redemption through in a way, right. Are these three witches, which I have like another question on that just a, a complete side note, do you often meet witches that are in groups of three? No, uh, no? no. Okay, I mean, no. Why do you? Okay. I have, I have, like in various, various aspects of my life, met witches who like, like, oh, like they're like three best friends, like constantly. Huh. I mean, that would yeah, make and sense, I, out, particularly. Yeah, and it was just like I was thinking about. Like, yeah, there's a Macbeth, and there's a in the Witcher games. There's you there's three. My witches. mind, bro, the three chicks. There was a mother maiden crone archetype
2: hmm yeah so there's
0: <laughs> well there you go so i'm I'm glad i got to, <laughs> to add something else to your repertoire yeah i've just i've just i've just noticed that that come up several times and i was like oh, i wonder if that's thing. So i just figured i'd ask you on the podcast as a just complete side note that other people are gonna be like what the heck are they talking about but it's worth it that's for me <laughs> the the other thing along that line is coming from a jehovah's witness and talking with a lot of people who are in various aspects of, uh, of spirituality or psychology and integration, right? A lot of these, um, and I have two other really good friends or one of them is sort of like an ex friend now, but I care about her so deeply mm-hmm. who were raised Jehovah's witness. And that like I was raised as a conservative Christian and that has done a lot of damage that has <laughs> been really challenging sure. to integrate. And then hearing about what happens with, At jehovah's witnesses where it's this other incredibly extreme level of that um, beyond what i was ever aware of that it can really put people in a really fragmented place that even like your level of like what you're struggling with from a mental standpoint how you how often like you're kind of you know basically scared of all the things that they're telling you to be true i don't know if that was true for you or not but that was true for a lot of my friends like makes it really difficult to sort of integrate once you've left that system um so yeah, I would love to hear um if you don't mind just sharing just a little bit about your your experience in Jehovah's Witness, you know, how and when did you leave and then how did you how did that kind of lead to um honestly the discovery with the witches and starting this this practice and for yourself?
1: Totally. Um I love that question. So let's see. Uh being Jehovah's Witness, I was born into it. Uh, my grandma was a Jehovah's Witness, my mom was born into it, so it's a generational thing. Mm-hmm. And it's kind and of you cool. two right? generations, or further
0: back than that? Are you just two generations, or further uh, back than that? My grandma. All right, cool. Yeah, just just, just curious because I have a friend who's like six or something like that, and I was like, "That is <laughs> yeah,
1: fucking wild, man." You, you know, but that. even the Let's two.
0: Yeah, it's 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 wild. So anyway, yeah. continue, please.
1: I was kind of fortunate, you know, like as a kid, I I did the thing, I went door to door with my mom and my grandma and I knocked on the Mm -hmm. doors and I did the preaching, but mostly I was into that for like, if I was a good boy, I'd get to go to 7-Eleven and get a fucking candy bar afterwards. So mostly I was Mm -hmm. in it for the candy or to play (laughs) with the kids and their toys. If the kid, whoever owned the home had, that was was my deal. But I think, I don't know how old I was, but I did give up as like a six year old or seven year old or eight year old. I did get up and give a talk to the whole congregation. Where like I had to read a passage from the Bible and describe it. And my mom wrote it for me. I had no fucking clue what I was talking about. Right. So up until that time, it was mostly just doing what my mom wanted me to do.
2: Right.
1: But my dad died when I was six years old. Mm -hmm. And that was basically the defining moment of my life. Uh, I was Mm -hmm. there when it happened. Uh, I saw his body. And I was six. So that really kind of fucked my head up. And it left me with a few distinct ideas about the world. One, that the world is chaotic and dangerous. Two, there's absolutely nothing I can do about it. And three, anything I love can be taken away from me at a moment's notice, and that's just how it is. And so I learned that at six. And being left around Jehovah's Witnesses, they don't really have good answers to questions that a six-year-old would develop after an experience yeah. like yeah. So I wanted to know what was going on. I was like, why did this happen? Like somebody helped me fucking make sense of this. This is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And all they could do was read to the Bible. And I was like, would you fucking not? Like, could you just <laughs> give me some like heart to heart? Like yeah, connect yeah. with me and treat me like a person and say something that you thought through for yourself instead of just reciting a book. But nobody yeah. could do it. And so even at like six or seven, I was just like, You guys, I'm smarter than you guys. Like, even as a little kid, I was like, I, I know more than you. And so I, you know, played it cool for a little bit, but then I ultimately left the religion at twelve, and officially just told my mom I'm not going anymore because this is all mm-hmm. nonsense. I can talk circles around them, so I'm not yeah. doing this.
0: Were you labeled with, uh, I think, what they refer to as like a free spirit, or something of that nature? There's like a a label people for being sort of worldly. People. Yeah, so there's there's being worldly. I think there's one that my friend had labeled though, where it's like you're labeled with like a disagreeable spirit or something. It's, it tends to be with people who like. I would say like are intellectually combative uh, <laughs> at a young age. That's
1: a good explanation for me. I am very intellectually combative. Yeah. However, let's see. Uh, no, they never gave me any label like that. I never really drank the Kool-Aid in the first place. Got it. Like my brother got baptized. So him turning around was a bigger deal. Got it. So it's kind of funny because my dad was like that. I, I got my rebellious side from my dad because he, he wanted to be one of the elders, but they kept telling him, telling him what to do. And he's like, I'm not going to do that. And so I kind of got that side from my dad, but they never labeled me anything. Uh, I didn't drink the Kool-Aid ever, so I was never really a part of the church. So I don't think Mm -hmm. anybody really ever considered me as part of it. I didn't get baptized. My brother did. um, And I kind of just did whatever I wanted. So I don't think anybody ever considered me as part of it. So me dissenting wasn't – I don't think it was that surprising to anyone. Got it. Got it.
0: Yeah, it's a little bit – I want to say probably a little bit different from my other two friends because one of them – his family, like I said, six generations in, he was like, he was like really, really in it from, um, you know, from a young age. And he he was like sent to like their headquarters in like Washington, D.C. or wherever they were yeah. in Virginia or something like that. Yeah, you oh, know yeah. what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so he was like, you know, in kind of that deep level of it but was also just very smart and was like, he knew at some point he was going to leave and he was just kind of going through the motions at that point. And my other friend, uh, she was pretty combative and a woman in that in that set and setting. And uh, her, her, I think her dad or her family was like a very well-known thing within the church. So I'm sure it's a little bit different if you're maybe not as prominent through that kind of thing. So that makes sense.
1: Oh yeah, my, my friends that made it or people that I knew that made it past adolescence and into mm-hmm. somewhat of adulthood they had a much harder time leaving. I had yeah. a friend. Like I have a friend. He was one of my best friends when I, was kid, when I was a kid who I haven't talked to in maybe 10 or 15 years. He just recently found me on Instagram because he finally left the church. But his family was so inhospitable about it. He left the country. He moved to Korea
0: because wow. that's wow. how far he had to get away in order to feel like he had his own life. Wow. Wow. That's gnarly. And, and what state were you in when you were in the church and this is going on? Born and raised in California. In California? What part? Like more than, in Southern California Northern California? Orange County represent. Yeah. Orange County. Oh, South okay. Orange County. Yeah. Down in, okay. Don't know. See, that makes sense. Uh, all right. Just cool. For those, just to be clear, there's two different types of Orange County. There's, <laughs> okay.
1: there's the kind of Orange County, you know, from Real Housewives and shit. And I mm-hmm. did go to high school with those kids. I did know some of those kids, but mm-hmm. there's also South County, which is where I spent most of my time. It's where I graduated from high school. It's where all my friends lived. And South County is the best part of California. I probably shouldn't even be saying this because now people are going to go look it up and start going. But it's it's completely different. It's just beach cities and chilling. And I was homeless during high school. So it was <laughs> just like me having the best time on the beach with my friends. So, so is South Orange good. County, is
0: that like Huntington?
1: Even Huntington is kind of like the bougier, like not as cool version. Uh, uh-huh. I'm talking okay. about like Dana Point, San Clemente, San Juan Capistrano,
0: like that whole area All right, cool. Yeah, I'll have to check out that area because my my association with Orange County is mostly Fullerton, which is where uh, I went to college and Fullerton was there for about four years. And it's that area, that type of Orange County is probably my least favorite place in the world because it's like all of the same. Like it's just all cement. It's all these same buildings that look exactly the same. There's like a Taco Bell every four blocks. Like it's just there's no culture. There's no no heart. That's in Northern Orange County. Fullerton yeah, in particular
1: used to be a really solid punk rock hotspot. It's yeah, where all the yeah. punk bands used to be from, so it used mm-hmm. to be cool when I was a teenager. But now it just sucks. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, that's North Orange
0: County. I'm from South okay. Orange County. Got it. Okay. Cool. Well, I will I will give South Orange County a, a shot then next time I'm uh, visiting <laughs> my family. <laughs> awesome. So so kind of back to your story. So you are you're 12, you're like, Hey, I'm, I'm done, mom. How does your, how does your mom take it at at 12? She's just like, all right, that's, that's fine. That's what you want to do. And (laughs) that's what you do it. Or is she like, nah, I'm, I'm putting you back in in church. What like, how does that dynamic happen?
1: I was a very uncontrollable kid. You just couldn't tell me to do stuff. You just couldn't, I just wouldn't do it. Um, There's a running joke in my family of kind of like my catchphrase or my motto is don't tell me what to do. Like, even if somebody told me to do something that I wanted to do, or that would be good for me, I'd be like, don't tell me what to do. I was, I was like, that's rebellious as a kid where nobody could tell me what to do. Nobody. So mm. ultimately, it was actually my brother that kicked me out of the house when I was 16 because my mom mm. was like, I can't fucking control this kid. I don't know what to do. And my brother's like, I got an idea. Let's yeah. kick him out. And so my mom did it.
0: Wow. Wow. And that was your older brother? Yeah. He's two and a half years older than me. Wow. Do you still have a relationship with him? Yeah, we're tight as hell now. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Has he left the church as well? Or is he still in that? Yeah. He left a little bit after
1: I did. It's interesting. Oh, wow. After I left,
0: there was kind of an
1: exodus, like a, like maybe four or five people left after I did.
0: Wow. Wow. That's, that's a lot. So you started, started a trend. Yeah. So, okay. So you're kicked out of the house at 16. And then and then what? Like, are you just, you're out and about like scavenging for, for funds or do you, are you living with friends? Like, how no. do you kind of go about that?
1: So being homeless in Orange County isn't really being homeless. <laughs> uh, that's fair because uh, all my friends were rich or all my friends parents were rich so mm-hmm. a lot of my friends they had cars that could drive me around everywhere also I went to a different school every year from sixth grade to 11th grade wow so I went to I went to all different schools all around Orange County so I knew everyone I knew a was that just
0: happenstance
1: <laughs> kind of I mean uh, I just I just didn't do school. So when I was in third grade, uh, before my dad died, I got tested with like a near genius IQ. And then after my dad died, I failed every grade from third grade to 11. Because my third grade teacher told me that that was no reason to not do my homework. So I was like, fuck you. I'm never doing anything ever again. Fuck you. Fuck this whole system. Yeah. I'm
0: doing what I want. I'm out. So you have a natural like antagonist personality, I would say. That's kind of the, your base core at that point. It's like if somebody tells you to do something or not do something, your initial reaction is like, I am doing the opposite of that. Yeah, I'm doing what,
1: well, I mean, luckily I'm not that way anymore, but yeah. Right, right, right. Because I felt yeah. powerless. I felt powerless mm-hmm. against the chaos of the world. Mm-hmm. And I had to feel like I was in control. I had to feel right. like I was the yeah. one in power. Otherwise yeah. I'd, I'd give way to powerlessness and just melt and I couldn't allow that.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I, I mean, I resonate with that a lot, not necessarily in being as disagreeable. I feel that like disagreeableness is something I've I've more cultivated within myself and it's something I've learned to own. And simultaneously, I, I had a lot of that sense of, and for whatever reason, the thing that comes up for me is like my hair, like I used to grow my hair like way longer than it should have been. And I, I looked awful. And I would go through these phases where people would be like telling me to cut it, like my friends or, or family or whatever. And On one level, I wanted to cut it because I wanted to look better. At the same time, I hated the fact that they wanted me to cut it. And I was like, I don't want to cut it because they want me to. And that makes me feel this like weird stupidity about it, right? Or the shame for whatever reason. Yeah, yeah. All right, cool. Well, so, okay, so it's getting back to your story, which I've probably said a few times now. But like you, so here you are, you're... 16, you've left. You're hanging out with your friends, it sounds like, and you're able to kind of like moose with them. So are you kind of like couch hopping between your, your different friends' families at that point? Or are you living out on the yeah, street? Yeah, or- there,
1: was, there was two friends whose moms really loved me, so they gave me a room. There was a couple places where I actually had a bed that was mine. Um, and I could come and stay there pretty much whenever I wanted. There was a couple other people. Uh, my friend Adam had to hide me in his bathtub. So I spent, you know, a night or two sleeping in a bathtub. Which was interesting because like his, his like family would come into the bathroom to take a leak at like late at night. And I've got the bathroom shutters like over me. And so I'm hiding in the bathroom trying to not make any sounds while the family is like coming in and out of the bathroom. And oh, my saying. God.
0: That I'm just hilarious. trying to sleep.
1: Yeah. So it's interesting. <laughs> uh, I had another friend uh, whose dad was a dickhead, but the mom was cool. And so the mom would hide me from the dad. And wow. she would be like, okay, so he's going to go here at this time, so you can sleep here, but he's going to wake up at this time, so you got to be out by here. And mm-hmm. so uh, I also had a classic car. I had a 1974 Galaxy 500, which is basically a boat on wheels, so I can sleep in there <laughs> if I needed to. Okay.
0: Uh,
1: there was a cute couple different punk squats I could stay at, uh, really dirty, nasty, disgusting places, but the people who lived there didn't give a shit, so I could stay there if I wanted. And between all those different options, I pretty much always had a place to go, oh. I pretty much always had food, except I didn't like that I was mooching off of my friends. So mm-hmm. I eventually got a job at Toys
0: R Us, which was amazing. That's, that, is, that seems like the funniest place for you to be getting a job at this stage in your, in your life. <laughs> it was cool. I had a great job. I sat in the back
1: and played with all the return toys to see if they were broken. Oh, and wow. And if they were broken, I put them in this pile. And if they still work, I put them in this pile. And then on Saturdays, I got to run the Yu Gi Oh! and Pokemon card tournament, which I was really into Yu Gi Oh! in high school. So
0: that was awesome for me. Yeah. All right. Cool. 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 And that might be um, OK. I want to talk about anime and your love for that because I know it's a big component of your UR. But I do want to continue sort of this story and getting kind of to the, the witches from here at this point. So you are yeah. close, to, close to graduating high school at this point so what what kind of what happens next like but how, how does your life shape out do you graduate from high school okay. do you drop yeah, out
1: so leading up to the witches there's a, there's a thing i forgot like the reason i left the religion was because i'm mm. sitting there at 12 years old and i started studying different religions because i was curious about what other mm. people thought because the idea of just like you're born into the right religion and everyone else is born into the wrong just didn't make any sense to me and so i was like let me study what everyone else thinks And then I was studying Buddha, studying Krishna, studying all these different people. And I was like, you know, most of these people are just random guys. You know, like I'm a random guy. If they figured it out, there's no reason I can't figure it out. So that's what I went to go do. And so I started different. That's why I left the religion at 12 was because I was like, I'm no different than you motherfuckers. You figure it out. I can figure it out. So I went to go do that. And then that ultimately led to me getting kicked out and all that sort of stuff. And so ultimately leading the witches was the result of my pursuit into finding the right way of life for me, because I was convinced that there was a right way to live, at least for me, and that I was going to find it. And so I experimented with new age philosophy and spirituality, uh, Eastern stuff, pretty much every philosophy or religion or spiritual practice I could get my, my hands on. I started studying and developing. And that, that is what ultimately led me to the witches is, uh, I had had my first, I've had multiple nervous, like mental breakdowns. And after my first one, I moved back home to orange County where I met my ex-girlfriend, uh, who was a witch. And then she had me, you know, we moved back to San Francisco with her friends, which was very, very difficult for me. Um, and that's kind of how all that happened as a result of just my, my spiritual seeking and all that sort of stuff. It ultimately just led me there
0: yeah so were you were you when you're struggling with the mental breakdowns it doesn't sound like unless i'm wrong it doesn't sound like you're dealing that much with that while you're in high school it seems like it's mostly once you've kind of gotten out in that kind of in-between space is that right or is it
1: yeah when i was in high school it was pretty much just nonstop fun Hmm. i was just having a good time all the time like i was extreme like because i was so kind of aggressive i was also really nice you know because i'm a nice guy and i like being friendly with people But I also just have a really strong, aggressive part of my personality. Like I, I, my insides are fire. I I tell Mm -hmm. people that I am made of fire on the inside. And when you get to know me, you start to see that more clearly. And like, Mm -hmm. I have a friend who's been coming over and she's like, wow, you listen to like fast, heavy punk rock, like all the time, like in the morning. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, like it soothes me. Mm -hmm. And so I've always kind of been like that. And so that was a big part of my seeking and making sure that I could deal with that. And it made high school really fun because when you're the like headstrong asshole, all the girls like you, all the guys are afraid of you. The guys that aren't afraid of you want to be your friend. And so I was intimidating to the guys, which made them respect me. And I was sexy to the girls, which means I could have whatever girl I was interested in. So I would have like five girlfriends at the same time. They didn't know about each other. I was like Mm -hmm. ultimate headstrong, super duper fuck boy in high school. Mm -hmm. Um, The problems didn't really start until I was about 19.
0: So what, what shifted at that point for you? Was it like kind of no longer having that structure of, of high school and the routine and the friends and stuff or like what, what shifted for you?
1: I got my comeuppance, uh, from all the fucking around I had done, uh, when I was 19, uh, I said I was staying in a few different squats and there was one in San Clemente that I spent a lot of time at because a lot of my friends hung out there. They were in the neighborhood and they always had drugs so I could go get high. I could go get drunk. I always had a place to sleep. My friends were always there. It was filthy. And disgusting looking back, I can't even imagine because I sleep just, geez, I can't believe I did that. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so I was hanging out there and uh, there was this girl there that I fell in love with. She, at the time, she was the most beautiful thing I had ever seen in my entire life. It was like, if you took my dream woman and just extracted her out of my brain and put her in this house, it's like, that's what it would have been like. Mm-hmm. And um, she liked me too. And I was shocked by that because I thought she was like a fucking angel. And so we go in this incredible romance, we take mushrooms together, I have my first experience of complete oneness where I don't know where my body ends and hers begins and we have one heartbeat and this whole fucking thing and she looks dead into my eyes she's like, I'm yours, blah, and then I just come to find out it's all bullshit because she's mm. actually engaged to a dude in, uh, who lived in L.A., and wow. she'd been lying to us. She told us all she was on witness protection because she witnessed a murder. But the truth is she lived with her fiance in LA, which is why we can never go to her house and why we can never ask certain questions. So she was a pathological wow. liar. And that's not even the worst part, bro. So the way I found, this is what crushed me and made it, mm-hmm. made the mental health problems so much worse, mm-hmm. is I had this intuition that she was cheating on me. Hmm. And so I call her up and I talk to her and everything seems fine so I'm like whatever and I say say I love you goodbye. She says thank you. Like, what the fucker says thank you. And so I call her back and I was like, "Yo, what's that all about?" Who says thank you. And then she h- hangs up real quick and then I get another call back from the boyfriend proceeding to tell me that he bought a ring for her, that she's his and that he let's just say he lists off a bunch of explicit things he had just done to her to me. Wow. And yeah, And so it just completely shattered my heart and it was actually the very first time I ever doubted myself
2: Hmm.
1: because I was so headstrong. I always knew the right thing to do. I always knew what I thought was right. I always knew what was true for me and I was, and I always did what I thought was right. But this was the first time my heart and mind were in conflict with each other. My, my heart wanted to be with her, but my mind knew she was no good. Hmm. And this was the first time they ever split where what I knew was right is not what I did. And that split lasted for a really long time. I actually just healed it this last year. Hmm. And so it's been with me since I was 19 um, until a year ago. And that's when my mental health problems really started to get bad because it was, I just couldn't take it anymore. The, the split, I started doubting myself. My confidence was gone. My anxiety started to shoot up. As a result of the anxiety shooting up, uh, started to build on itself and compile over time and turn into chronic depression all of my mental health shit that I had been essentially powering through was finally coming to the surface. And I basically became a shell of myself for like the next 10 years.
0: Wow. Wow. Yeah. It's a, thank you so much for, for sharing all that. I know that, that, that sounds incredibly, incredibly painful. And it's interesting because the thing that came up for me in that was um, I remember being in, I forget what, what psych class, it might've been like a relationships class or something, but that, there is sort of within men like our sort of our the beginning of our ability to sort of have peak attachment is at 19 and that's yeah and so and there's this correlation uh where like 19 i believe is the peak or at least was the peak of of suicide in men And part of the belief around that with that connection, and it's correlation, it's not causation, right? But it's this idea that, hey, like that basically young men are able to finally have these sort of like peak emotional experiences. And then there's also a lot of breakups that happen at 19. And if they haven't had, I mean, it sounds like you were dating a little bit before then. But if you hadn't sort of experienced heartbreak before then, and then you have like your peak experience of that, and then there's major heartbreak sort of the psyche kind of doesn't know what to do. Um, and you're also kind of at this weird time where you're just out of high school, you're maybe in college or maybe you're not, right? And so you don't maybe have the same support networks that kind of leads to a lot of that that suicidality. And it sounds like um, from what I'm hearing, you definitely seem to do that, especially kind of that powerful experience you mentioned with the mushrooms and, and that entire oneness experience. I mean, that's a lot to go from that t- peak experience to this crash and this this breaking point.
1: Yeah, it was devastating, man. It fucked me up for a really long time. But at the same time, it, it gave me an intention. It, it gave me a purpose. Hmm. You know, it's just like, okay, she's gone, whatever. I'm going to devote the rest of my life to figuring out how to be as happy as I was when I was with her all on my own. Hmm. And so that ended up be, being
0: like a huge motivator for me to, to find the path that would get me there. So to, to find that sense of that oneness that you're experiencing. Um, but without it relying on somebody else.
1: Yeah, because I I felt alive. I felt elated, you know, like I Mm -hmm. felt loved by the most beautiful woman at the time I could imagine. And so that that meets so many of your needs, it validates so much inside of you and and gives you so much that you don't have access to without that person. And I kind of took it as like, okay, that's how good I'm capable of feeling. Like, let Mm -hmm. me find a way to feel that way without having to depend on anyone for it.
0: Yeah yeah that makes sense. You know you mentioned that it's you've been in this work for 10 years, you're obviously leading a lot of people through it. and you know, I want say only with the caveats that you know it can take as long as it's supposed to. but only in the past year have you really found sort of that sense of of healing from that that trauma. What did that that healing look for you? How, what what was it that finally took to be able to um and to rekindle that relationship between mind and heart, I guess?
1: It was, it was actually me ending another relationship that did it. Hmm. It, was, it was wild because my last relationship ended in January and I love this woman, still do love her, adore her. However, I was kind of showing up in that split like, oh, I know what the right thing to do is, but my heart's pulling me in this way. And it was just having me show up in ways I didn't really like. And then it was interesting because I was experiencing that split, but there was a moment in the relationship where I had this intuitive sense that I knew what was wrong but I wasn't comfortable admitting it because it would mean I'd have to end the relationship and all that sort of shit. And i also didn't trust it, you know, cause I was like, what if I'm wrong and I could miss out on the best thing I've ever had. And so it was all this doubt that started when I was 19. However, something happened at the end of the relationship, the day I ended it where I said something and my ex-girlfriend at the time said something that kind of had me realize I was, like, Oh shit, my intuition was right. Like, mm-hmm. like we're actually not good for each other. We're actually making things worse than they need to be. I was right. And then in that acknowledgement that we were actually hurting each other more than we were, we were helping, and she said something to kind of acknowledge, not really to acknowledge, but she said something that internally for me acknowledged my intuition, and then that split just came back together. It was like, nope, you were right the whole time, bro. Just do what you knew what was right. And so as a, moment, as a result of that, that reconnected, and I feel so much more connected to myself. I feel... More grounded, I feel connected to what's true for me, uh, the ability to do what I want and know what is right, even if other people don't like it. Um, I just feel so much more whole as a result. It's it's been beautiful.
0: Wow. Awesome, man. I'm super happy for you. Um, I guess one one follow-up question I have to that is was there a particular like practice or skill set or meditation or anything that you use to to gain that sense of of clarity amidst that kind of that initial friction between your, your mind and heart?
1: Yeah. I mean, shadow integration to a large degree is actually the bridge between mind and heart. Mm -hmm. Like specifically shadow integration, especially when you add that analytical element of it once, because that's where the mind meets the body and it's where the mind meets the heart and all that sort of stuff. Because it's like, okay, your emotions are in your body and it's your mind that goes in there and attempts to make sense of everything. Mm. So it's like, okay, I'm experiencing all these emotions. Let me go in there with my mind, look at what I'm experiencing, hold space for it, analyze it, try to understand it, try to take out or try to extrapolate the needs that need to be met and go ahead and start meeting those. So on a fundamental level, shadow integration itself is the bridge between body and mind and body or and heart and mind. And the other interesting thing about it is that it bridges pretty much everything because shadow integration is the op- is the practice of integrating opposites. And like this symbol that I wear around my neck is the alchemical philosopher's stone. Mm-hmm. And the philosopher's stone, obviously, it's from an anime, which I have a sticker from that anime as well, because <laughs> uh, it's my favorite of all time. But in their their version of alchemy, isn't based in anything real. However, the ancient alchemists used the alchemical practice as a kind of metaphor. They would talk about things uh, as if it's like turning lead into gold, but actually they're talking about the transmutative process of taking an unhealthy part of yourself or negative energy that you've been harboring and transmuting it into something positive, AKA gold. Mm -hmm. And another big part of their thing is the integration of opposites. And so the philosopher's stone is created when all internal opposites are in harmony. Mm -hmm. And it's said to give you uh, everlasting life, cure diseases, all kinds of stuff. Basically that's your energy flow. And so for a very long time, for about 10 years, I've been practicing the art of integrating internal opposites. And so every single time you do shadow integration, what you're really doing is dealing with the conflict between like, let's say this part of me really wants a relationship, but this part of me is afraid of it. That's what you're dealing with. An argument between the two sides. This part of me wants money, this part of me afraid of having it. Let's have a conversation between the two and figure mm-hmm. out what they have to add and what they're freaked out about and how they can support each other. So leading up to this, up in like this last year, I've been integrating opposites as a life
0: path for, you know, nine years.
1: And so it was just kind of a very natural expression of that.
0: Got it. Got it. So within that, are there, is there like, for somebody who wants to get into this kind of work or do this kind of thing, is there a, I want to say like an initial practice that you would give somebody, like, would it be like them sort of, let's say like, let's give the example of, being in a relationship and uh my desire to be like alone right and there's these benefits and costs and there's this this tug of war that can exist between those two things like do you go and like would I go sit and sit down and uh journal about it and write out the pros and cons on both sides and then kind of sit and like talk without it would I sit into some sort of a hypnosis kind of tract and kind of more emotionally talk within these two parts like how would you yeah what what kind of thing would you give somebody who wants to kind of begin this style of work and and have it work for them?
1: That's a great question. So the, the framework that I teach is basically it starts like this. Like you, you have to come up with a vision for how you want your life or your relationships or your career or whatever to be. You have to know where you're aiming. And you also have to give your internal resources, all the parts in you, something to organize around, That like gives them structure, gives them purpose, give them context for their existence. And so once you do that, once you say, this is where we're going, this is where we're aiming, the parts of you that are on board with that get on board. And then the parts of you that are not on board with that start to speak up. And then it's your job to just listen. So it's beautiful because you don't actually have to go looking for your shadow. Like you don't have to go looking for anything. All you have to do is get clear on who you want to be, what kind of life you want to live and walk in that direction. And eventually something's going to come up to get in your way. Mm -hmm. So my mentality is kind of like, if it's not broke, don't fix it. You going to say
0: something? Yeah. I was just saying, so once, once the, I guess my question is like once that, once that conflict comes up, what do I do then? As a, I was like a novice shadow practitioner.
1: So what I did in the beginning, and what I would recommend as somebody new, is uh, first of all judge your self awareness and emotional capacity. Maybe do a little bit of se- sitting meditation, and see if you get really anxious, or see if you get really overwhelmed or something. And then I would maybe start with a mindful find, uh, with a mindfulness practice for a few weeks leading up to it. Because if you just start going into shadow integration, you're kind of opening Pandora's box and you don't know what's going to be in there and you don't know how well you're going to be able to hold any of it. So it could dysregulate you. It could like, you could just start acting angrily because you've opened up a new pocket of anger that you don't know how to deal with. And suddenly you're fucking yelling at everybody. So there's like things to be aware of. However, your mind does have a lot of natural defenses against that. Like It doesn't doesn't really let you look at stuff that you're not ready to look at. Unless you're on psychedelics, in which case be very fucking careful because the normal defenses are not there during psychedelics, and so you can open up shit that you're not ready to look at. However, for the most for most people, your it's your mind is designed to not let you look at stuff you're not willing or ready to see yet. So you have these kind of built in mechanisms, but you still want to gut, uh, judge your capacity. You still want to judge, you know, what happens when you sit with yourself and just get a sense for how much you can do. And then from there. If you're feeling safe, if you're feeling like it's okay to start doing this, then what I would recommend doing is, take, like you said, take out a sheet of paper and let each part of your personality just express itself through you, like completely just uh stream of consciousness. And they might argue, you know, so you might have to go back and forth. You might have to be like, I really want to go do this thing. And the other part's going to be like, oh, but it's so fucking scary. And what if everyone hates us? And it's like, well, but like, I'd really like it. And it's so, like, you might go back and forth for a little bit, the idea is to let both sides express everything they have to express. Because like, you know, after you vent, like you're angry about something and somebody lets you vent and then you take a deep breath and you kind of think a little bit more clearly and you're like, ah, fuck, I'm glad I got that out.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's the Same type of deal. You want to yeah. let both parts vent everything out. Partially because that's going to get everything out of their system, allow them to take that deep breath and relax and think more clearly. But when you look over it later, You're going to be able to parse out, like, what specifically are they afraid of? Like, I want to have tons of money, but I'm afraid it'll turn me into a shit person. It's like, okay, great. What about it might turn me into a shit person? Is there any part of me that already wants to be a shit person? If so, let me address that. And then once that's addressed, then all of a sudden the part of me that wants money and this other guy over here can be like, yeah, let's go get the money. Because the thing I was worried about has been dealt with. So let's go fucking get it. Mm -hmm. so that's kind of what the integration process looks like in real time and that's how you can kind of get both sides on board like one side wants something and the other doesn't and it's got good reasons so once you address them it kind of teaches you how to go do the thing that you want to do in a way that you'll feel
0: good about got it so by taking that time to kind of let all of that stuff breathe you're able to From what i'm hearing um a let the let the air out but also in a lot of ways almost get like this awesome brainstorming experience right where you're getting all these ideas and processes out there that allows you to then kind of go from being stuck in the mind which is for me one of the best things i found about journaling is just like the the closed loops that have been going on in my mind over and over and over again are able to actually just like stop (laughs) because there's a period finally um, and they have a place to go versus just being these kind of incomplete sentences in my head and then once those are out there, you're able to um, kind of say, have that, that hovering awareness or consciousness that's allowed to really, like you said, integrate those experiences and kind of make that, I would say, more complete decision rather than it being this kind of binary choice. Is that yeah, exactly? Because
1: exactly. every cool. single part of you has something valuable to offer. I've been doing this for 10 years and I've never found a single part of myself that didn't have some value or wisdom or insight mm-hmm. that I could actually integrate into my life. So when yeah. you go forward with that assumption and understanding, it's like, yeah, sure, I'll face whatever. Like let's let's do this. Let's figure it out.
0: Yeah. All right, cool. Well, I have, a, I, have a, I guess there's a fun question on that. Like, what has been the and I don't want to say what's the most valuable, but what is the thing that has surprised you the most that has had value that you're like, there is no way this thing was gonna have value. But then when you looked at it, you were like, Oh, that's fuck, that just leads to this really awesome thing. But I was so there's no fucking way that this is possible. Then I'm like, okay, it's, yeah, that actually does help a lot.
1: Yeah. So it's, it's with the first thing I started with, you know, mm. like, cause I was telling I told you, I was having these like, uh, intrusive thoughts about harming the people that I cared about. Mm. And so in order to like test myself, I had my come to Jesus moment where I was like, all right, I'm going to fucking go to a therapist and I'm going to tell him everything that's happening. And if he locks me away, he locks me away. And that's kind of all there is to it. I'll pay whatever penance I must. I'll do the right thing. And so I went to this therapist in San Francisco and I told him what was going on and he laughed at me. <laughs> He's like, bro, do you have any idea how normal that is? Like, that's just like a normal thing that happens to people. Like there was, he told me this story about this famous psychologist that had an urge to throw his baby off a balcony. And he was like, mm-hmm. you're never going to throw him off the balcony. Sometimes you have urges. It's like, it's fine. Right. And that gave me a couple insights. I was like, first of all, I was relieved that I didn't have to go to a mental institution. But secondly, I was like, wait a minute, if that's normal. We are fucked. Because that should not be normal. <laughs> but eventually I warmed up to it, you know. And I learned more about shadow integration. And I learned that I had to love this part of me that was giving me these visions that I was terrified of. And I was like, What do you mean I have to love it? And like let it express itself. It wants to kill people. It's the worst idea I've ever heard. And <laughs> some other part of me recognizes it as true. So I knew I had a bunch of rage to get out. I knew I had a bunch of hatred to get out because I, I hated the world for what it did to me as a kid. And so I knew I had a lot of shit to get out. So I started taking Kung Fu. I joined a men's group, started spinning fire, started working out, uh, doing anything I could do to express all that rage and that hatred and that anger. And as I started getting it out and doing my integrative practice, I started to realize it was like, oh, wait a minute, I'm actually angry for a reason. I'm angry because people are abusing me and manipulating me and mistreating me and I'm not standing up. And the part of me that was supposed to stand up is so fucking fed up of being pushed into a corner that it's like, no, motherfucker, if you don't do something about this, I'm going to kill people because I have to stop this. And once I understood that, I was able to respect it because I would be like, damn, like, that's how, that's how strong you are. Like, you'll kill people to make sure this happens. Like, all right, I'd actually rather have you on my side. And so I started to realize that all that anger was meant to be creating boundaries. And it was meant to be standing up for myself. And it was meant to be my connection to myself and my truth and my values and my standards. And once I understood that, I could start to channel that anger. And I started setting boundaries. I started standing up for myself. Um, I started just living in a much healthier way. And now it's interesting because one of my favorite quotes from Carl Jung or favorite quotes in general is that what you need most will be where you least want to look. Mm-hmm. And this part of me was the thing I was the most afraid of. And it ended up being the biggest catalyst in my life because it gave me my life back. It helped me stand up for myself, figure out who I am, tell the truth, get clear on my vision, and actually start to execute it regardless of what other people thought. So I was of, I was terrified of it. It almost got me to end my life. But as a result of integrating it, I became a completely new dip, uh, different person.
0: Wow. Oh, wow, awesome. And so to honestly summarize kind of what you said, it essentially that that rage and that inner feeling of those intrusive thoughts, even though that were like I'm going to kill my friends, that fundamentally stemmed from this repetitive nature of letting people cross your boundaries. Okay. And then over time you were able to a allow that that rage to vent, but then also use that as fuel you to start stepping up for yourself and to start having those boundaries and that clarity, both I would say internally and externally and towards the things that you wanted in your life, probably even creating the boundaries with yourself and like the self-discipline and those kind of components to it. Uh, Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah.
1: And it it also introduced me to like the fact that I have a killer inside of me. Mm. Like we all do, but not all of us are aware of it. Like Mm. if you really took the time to think about it, like under what circumstances might I kill someone? Like in order to protect a baby or in order to like do whatever, you know, like we all have something we'd kill for and we all have something we'd die for. And what I learned, one of the things I've learned from this experience is that once you figure out what you'd kill for, mm. you have your foundation set. <laughs> it's like, this is the thing I'd go all the fucking way for. And then from there, everything else doesn't really matter as much. Because the part of you that would kill to do something or protect something or make sure that somebody got to survive, once that's integrated and there's a sense that if you keep pushing me far enough, bad things will happen, people just naturally start to respect your boundaries a little bit more. And it's when you don't have that, the like, what test me, motherfucker, and see where this goes. Like if you don't have that in your being anywhere, people that want to walk over your boundaries will know that it's easy. And they'll try to do that. And you'll be in conflict for the rest of your life. But when you have a part of you that's like, no, I'll go this far. And I know what I'll go this far for. So don't test me. People just kind of naturally respect it. And they don't even want to mess with you anymore. Yeah, and it's yeah. not that you act like a killer. You don't lead with that. But it's this thing. It's like, I know myself. I know what I'm capable of. And yeah. like, so I have that integrated and it gives me a certain kind of backbone and solidity. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. I've, I've heard once in this, um, and it resonated with me it's like the idea of like having a sheathed sword right this mm-hmm. idea of when you have that you you're not walking around with your sword out you're not flaying around at people and hurting anybody right but there's also this like yeah i have this um and if something were to happen like there i might get killed but i'm still gonna chop off an ear probably or, or make my it's not yeah. gonna be easy right
1: and it even uh, humbles
0: you because it's like because uh-huh. i know
1: where i can go in myself I'm going to be extra loving and extra peaceful so that I never get that. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Like, I know what I can do and I don't want to do that.
0: Right. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all that. That's uh, yes. super, super insightful. My pleasure. Yeah. Well, I love the kind of we can still definitely keep talking about shadow work, and I actually would love to as it relates to some of these things. But I know that you are a huge, huge, huge anime fan. I believe the first time I saw you, you were wearing like a, a Naruto uh, Halloween costume. Um, I've never seen Naruto, but there I am at three Naruto costumes over that whole weekend. Oh, were there? <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> but yeah, I would love to um, hear about that. Like how 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 anime why anime what do you love about anime and i'm curious um, i'm guessing it does but like what do you find within anime as like a tool or a i'll say like a map or guide within shadow work even Mm, cool
1: cool so let's see i got into i was into it as a kid you know like Mm -hmm. toonami would come on and i'd
0: watch dragon ball z and like goku turned super saiyan and i shit my pants and it was a huge deal it's still the greatest moment on tv ever i'm pretty convinced
1: yeah, it's it's the it's the greatest moment in anime pretty much ever, except I did try to rewatch it again. And it's
0: unwatchable. It is so <laughs> much powering up.
2: and yeah, streaming
0: yeah. For like four episodes straight that I was like, I yeah. can't do this. Like, I watched I, I rewatched recently uh, all of Dragon Ball Z. Uh, I cut out all of the filler episodes and then cool. I'm almost finished with Dragon Ball Super, which I have to finish soon because they're going to take it off of Hulu soon. But I I was watching the same thing where it's like is like yeah there's five minutes left of the planet and you're like fifteen episodes later the planet is still not destroyed so I don't know what kind of time you know I think they're using but it's not super accurate but yeah I, I definitely felt the same way there's just like you can tell how much they are just stretching these episodes out longer and longer but yeah I I definitely will never forget where I was when when Goku turned Super Saiyan and um, oh same. yeah that. Yeah, that, that, that Frieza saga is just, um, it's a, at that point, it's a perfect perfect show, um, minus yeah, the overly long episodes.
1: <laughs> so, yeah, I got, I got into that when I was a kid and I loved anime mm-hmm. and all that sort of stuff. But also, growing up as a Jehovah's Witness, I wasn't really allowed to watch a lot of stuff like that. Yeah. So I had to kind of sneak around. But I didn't really get super into it until I was in my 20s. And because I had pushed myself for so long to, to, Against my own demons. I've been fighting against them for so long that I had my first mental breakdown. I think it maybe 22 mm. And it was when my ability to push just kind of broke. I was like, I can't push anymore I just I can't do it and then my mind just kind of collapsed in on it itself And I used to go out and party every day I used to go out and do really crazy things and had this really active lifestyle and I just found that I just couldn't do it anymore I didn't want to mm. and so I was like, well, what do I want to do instead? And I thought back to my old high school friend, Trevor, and I was like, you know, he got so much out of nerd shit. And I was always kind of jealous of that. I always kind of wanted something like that. So let me get into anime. And so I uh, started watching Naruto and I got into cartooning for a little bit. Uh, I didn't stick with it, mm. but I did get into it for a little bit. And I just fell in love with the character. So Kakashi is my favorite anime character. Uh, if you guys don't know him, he's a fucking G. Kakashi is that from Naruto?
0: Naruto?
1: Yes. Yes. He's okay. Naruto's first teacher.
0: Got it. Okay.
1: And he was the guy I was dressed as the first night of the party.
0: Okay. Got it. Yeah, he's my
1: favorite anime character. Uh, He's amazing.
0: What? What are some of the qualities you liked about him?
1: Well, he's got a really interesting kind of parallel to my life in that Mm -hmm. his dad didn't. His dad killed himself when he was a kid, and that was a defining characteristic for him. It turned him against Mm -hmm. the world. Turned him against people. Kind of very similar to me, and it was through a series of events and people taking, people taking notice of him and caring that helped him steer away from this kind of nihilistic self-destructive path that could have, could have turned him into a villain. Hmm. And I just like resonate with that because I was yeah. all, cause he was also a really smart, gifted kid and so was I and bad shit happened to him. So he got, you know, went down a dark path exactly like me. But then when you meet him, you don't know any of that stuff happened. He's just this calm, cool, collected, really good leader who's great at teaching, doesn't take any shit. And then once you actually see him fight, you see that he's just cold as hell and he's just yeah. going to take out anybody. So nice. this, this contrast of like cool and stylish and fun and friendly and all that sort of stuff mixed with absolutely blood, not bloodthirsty, but just like, cause he's not vicious. He's just like, he's cold and they'll get it done. Yeah. And I really yeah. admired that duality in him. And so yeah. I got really into the show, but it was actually the, the one of the first main villains of the series that had the biggest impact on me. And uh, it was this guy, Pain, who's my favorite villain of anything ever. And he gives this monologue to Naruto after he destroys his entire village that I had to be like, I had to rethink my whole life after I heard the monologue. So I was like, this is wild. Because he's basically talking about, so his village was destroyed by Naruto's village. And so he comes back to destroy the village that destroyed his village, and then Naruto's like, "Oh, I'm gonna get revenge on you, blah blah blah." And he's like, "Yeah, okay, well that's what I said. So you destroyed my people, so now I'm here to destroy you. And then if you destroy me for destroying you, I'm just gonna come back and destroy you again. So we're gonna be in this never-ending conflict, and you don't have a way out of the conflict, but I do. I can become so big and so scary and t- so terrifying that no one will fight again just because they're afraid of me. And it it made. The main character Naruto really have to search his soul and be like, because in the beginning he didn't have an answer. He was like, I don't know what to say about that, because you're right. And I got nowhere to go from there. And so he had to search his soul and figure out a response to that as I was, because it happened, his the resolution happens like six episodes later. And so I was searching my soul for a resolution to that. And I was like, oh my God, it had so much come into focus for me and made me realize that, like, in our life, the The fragmentation of the the political sides and the constant Mm -hmm. like, you did this to us. And it's like, oh, but you did this to us. and like, you're terrible in this way. Oh, but you're also terrible in that way. Mm -hmm. And it's a never ending cycle that will only get worse and worse and worse as time goes by. Mm -hmm. And there has to be a mediating force to stop that cycle of running out of control. And then when I realized, or I thought about it more, and I realized that shadow integration is that, that force that can come in and create harmony out of the chaos and it gave so much more meaning to my work. It allowed me to discuss social issues in a more complex and relative way. It allowed me to talk about politics without talking about politics. I would actually just discuss the the, the fundamental psychological forces behind certain political ideas. So, Because if you attack the political idea, people get all defensive and they're like, oh, I got to defend my idea. But if you take it a deeper level and talk about the problems with the psychology that creates the belief, people can see that in themselves. They'll set that right and the political belief will go away on its own. So that ended up being a big intention for me, especially because I was teaching shadow integration during the Trump election and presidency, Mm -hmm. which was everybody just getting more and more angry and more and more violent and just fracturing their minds off. And just, I hated what I was seeing happen to the world. And so it, it gave me a real sense of purpose and context to be like, all right, you know, I may not have the thing, but I have a thing that if I go hard enough on this and if I get enough people to adopt this kind of mentality, I think I might at least be able to take us in some positive steps.
0: Yeah. And that was yeah, anime. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, because I, I want to touch on what you just said with regards to. Um, kind of the shadow integration and these like these ping pong like what one of the things that I see as a trend and I, I don't necessarily know if I like the word trend, but a a way that I feel like consciousness is moving is is out of this binary and into this sense of lack of a better word, oneness, but more like a wholeness, right? Rather than seeing these, you know, it's a this or a that. It's like, well, how, what about this area that can can integrate both of these things, right? That doesn't look up as myself as yang or yin, but is the yin-yang, right? Is is the whole and the collective. Um, I even remember I who I was listening to, some some psychiatrist or psychologist. It might have been um, a more mate actually, um, but there was somebody talking about how even a lot of the times within the Western world we see like yin and yang or masculine and feminine as this thing that is um, sort of static, right? It's like, Oh, we have this, either this perfect balance or this thing, but it's really more, and it's even designed that way. It's right. It's designed fluid. And so even the idea that we are sort of yin yanging, like there's this constant dance of these polar energies moving within us and, and leading to things. And I find, I find it to be so fascinating because I think, Obviously with COVID and everybody being so um, separate, like literally physically, right? We were all isolated in various components. You know, whether you chose to follow those regulations or not, you're still much more isolated than we had been as people. And the level of polarization that was happening at that time was so extreme and we were still falling out of it, but it's like, it also like, I feel like revealed so much of that polarization and the ridiculousness that everybody felt on some level. And as I went to more and more festivals of this last year where, you know, my dream was going to all these, these concerts, I went to, I think 54, uh, by the time I was done with it, it's, awesome. you know, I was, yeah, I was, I was the opposite, right? Where I'm like, I'm in these existences where I'm surrounded by all these different people and the conversations that I'm having are so much more intricate and dynamic than anything that you're seeing online because- right. The only thing you can see in a tweet is whatever it is, three sentences, right? So all you're seeing are these people. And then you're seeing the the Instagram posts or the people, you're seeing the people who are the loudest and often the most simplistic in thought versus people who are actually having these longer, more nuanced, complicated, personal conversations that allows these things to actually shape and have. Like Even some of the conversations you and I had in Austin, um, so a lot of the conversations I had with a lot of those people in Austin were so much more nuance and complex and actually human. And I just think it's a really, really interesting time because I feel as if we are starting to move out of that dichotomy, right? This even that sort of like Republican and Democrat and these these extremes that nobody's happy with. I mean if you I think if you pulled the vast majority of people, if they were like would prefer something else to happen besides just bouncing between these two extremes all the time. We'd probably vote for that. Right. Um, But how do we, how do we get that system to happen? How to create the system? I don't know, but I I do see there's more and more desire to have that happen and and a greater sense of, of talking to make that happen. I think.
1: I really want to believe that's the case. I I really want to believe most people are open to that. I, I wonder if that's a bubble that you're in, like, because you're such a good dude. Totally a
0: possible, totally a possibility. We're on. That has not levels, been my so. experience.
1: <laughs> 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 I have not had that experience, unfortunately. Yeah. Like, having a conversation with you, yeah. and, and also at the coffee shop, was really eye-opening for me. Like, you got me to embrace certain ideas, that I didn't see value in before. And a few other mm-hmm. people at that weekend, at that party did as well. Like, David's a good example of that. Got me to think of some new ways. And John has got me to think of some new ways.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, but the interesting thing about it is when I look at the world at large I see people kind of give that it's a little too it seems a little too jaded to call it lip service because that mm. makes, that makes it sound almost malicious mm-hmm. but because I don't mean it that way it's more just like people say that but then if you actually look at the stuff that they say when they're not in a conversation like that it's usually still pretty mm. one-sided at least in my opinion yeah and so I know very few people that actually live and speak and embody a really kind of balanced integrative way of being Hmm. and that could just be me that could just be my environment but i think most of my friends are like that but when i look around at the world and stuff most people are saying i don't see it as much as i'd like to yeah so yeah i don't really know what to say about that other than i do still think we have a long way to go Oh yeah. I have a, I think we have a huge way to go go. <laughs> I don't think we're yeah. there any means by any means yet. Yeah, because most people I know they'll be like, oh, you're on that side? Yeah. Don't need to know anything about you, mm-hmm. but fuck you. Yeah. Like, just yeah. because
0: you're on that side. I know a lot of people like that, like good people. Yeah. Yeah. And and I, I definitely see that as well. And I I do think that is a product of social media and like even as you look at how social media is designed and Elon Musk actually just I think I just saw a tweet from him talking about this where it's like, it's like, hey, just so you guys know, like the algorithms are designed to provide you things that you hate. Like if Mm -hmm. you end up commenting on something to argue with X person about X issue that you think is ridiculous it's actually going to bring that more into your fold, right? And one of the things that I have noticed about myself with my own algorithms, and it's interesting because I was not using my personal Twitter for a while. I had like a separate Lakers Twitter because I'm a huge Lakers fan and I was only using it really for sports and wasn't on my personal one. But I went into my my old uh, personal one. And there's a lot of people that I followed out of curiosity at that time that I'm like, seeing all these posts. I'm like, I do not like these people at all, or these things that they would are. But every time I'd go on there, it seemed I would get more and more of those, those messages. Right. And it's like, it's so, I feel like the way that social media is designed right now, which realistically we're in this very, very early stage version of social media. I think a lot of times we're like, Oh it's been around for 10 years. But it's like, yeah, but like wherever it's going to go, it's going to be here a lot longer than that. So we were still in like infancy stages with this stuff um, is it is designed to create this like bubble and then we start to associate like that's the way the world is. And I actually don't feel that way about what I just expressed earlier um, with regards to what I see in social media and in that bottle. And even a lot of times in, in different aspects of my environment, but when I put two people together and they actually see each other and they actually have conversations, that's where I see that stuff happening. And I've seen people with incredibly extreme positions adjust and develop and where there's there is that nuance of conversation and i think even like looking at a place uh like austin I, I i might have even said this to you there and i think i kind of had that original idea at that point like and i have no idea this is true so somebody like hears this and they're like that's ridiculous fine whatever but like my my kind of take on austin is it seems like it's like almost the the perfect encapsulation of like what america is right now like this this synthesis of all these beliefs right in some ways you have like these polar opposite extremes from like LA to aspects of the Midwest, but within Austin, you have so much diversity, not just diversity in in skin color and gender and all of that kind of stuff, but you also have incredible diversity in thought. And anybody that I have talked to in Austin has a series of complex, nuanced opinions. Even if they are very leftist or very rightist, they, they have a lot more complexity and at least have some aspect of integration from these other belief systems that are not purely dichotomy. Um, which I don't necessarily experience in every other city, but I definitely experienced it there. So yeah, so I I do feel like it is the thing. I think the thing that leads to it, I guess, on my end is more actual conversations between people and less bumper sticker posting.
1: Yeah, and especially what you said about it being in person, right? Mm -hmm. Because like, there's almost a kind of inherent dehumanization that comes along with social media because you're literally just placking on a keyboard and looking at a screen and it's like, that's Mm -hmm. not a person, that's just a little picture that might not even be a person. Yeah. But when you're sitting across from someone and you're actually in person having a conversation, you're just like – like social media brings out the worst in people. It, mm-hmm. it makes you want to be an asshole. For <laughs> some reason, you just want to be an asshole. This happens to me all the time. And But when I'm with a person, I don't want to be an asshole.
0: Yeah. Or you're afraid to be, right? And that's the other thing. And that's like another – almost interesting topic I want to get into with around like Gen Z, for example, is like for our generation, right? Like we grew up where the internet was like being introduced by the time we're like what, five to nine years old. And then, uh, social media, we have MySpace and some of that kind of affects us, but not that much. Right. And then Facebook's happening by the time I'm getting into college, Twitter is released. I think my second or third year in college. Right. So we're like kind of the butting edge, but we have this very strict dichotomy between sort of my personal self and the, the internet self, if you will. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's this, um, this public life and private life. And the only, public life that we would see people have would be celebrities and politicians up till then right Mm -hmm. and our relationship and actually david mamet talks about this who's a he's a playwright um and and screenwriter and stuff um and he wrote in one of his just little essays about how the academy awards for example are not about actually celebrating these awards that these people but that the actors and actresses directors producers writers represent basically American gods, right? These are our deities in a way. And it is not about watching the person win the award. It is that three seconds that we get to see the losers uh, break down. And it's our ability, it's our our sort of lust to like watch these deities become um, fallible and break and that that's our thing, right? And so going into like a deep theory with all this that stuff, right? Thing, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, so, so previously, going back to this kind of like private versus public aspect, in my mind, you kind of have, like, like I said, we have like the celebrities, our Arnold Schwarzeneggers, our all of these people out there are politicians that we could throw stones at, right? We, if they said something, we could demonize them, we could cancel them. Even back then they could, we could, you know, ruin their lives and we could bitch about them and say all these things. Right. But then once we were on the internet, we were exposed to that as well. Right. Now I can be in trouble. Like if I can be demonized. I can be all these things by, by saying these things. And a lot of us, and I'm totally myself included like don't necessarily have like the thickest skin of like oh how do I actually deal with it how do I deal with even my modicum level of hundreds of followers of fame if I say something and I'm interpreting correctly or somebody throws a stone at me or my friend who does the exact opposite me yeah right is how do I how do I express all these things and and feel safe and so most people I think don't and then you have Sort of, I'm very curious about how Gen Z is who are these are the people who were born with this technology. And so them being on camera is natural, right? That's not a baby. Yeah, exactly. There's not a dichotomy in the same way, I think, that they have with being publicly seen or being worried about trolls in the same way. You know, they're less I would say they're probably less worried about like a naked photo of them ending up online because certainly like, L, my yeah. generation <laughs> yeah right and that's and and all of them are like yeah well like it probably has happened or probably will happen or, or i have tons of nudes. like everybody has nudes of each other so it's like it doesn't matter right it's like the you know if, if we all have a gun like it doesn't really matter if somebody else has a gun because well we all have we all have a weapon and so like de- defuses the power yeah so i i don't know i'm really really curious about how all of that shapes and that was a long rambling theory on my end but i know love to hear any (laughs) any thoughts wherever you want to take that i guess
1: well i mean it's just for me it's like this this polarization like i do think it's getting better like you said Mm -hmm. you know like comedy is coming back we can laugh at things we couldn't laugh about a few years ago nobody really takes trump seriously anymore uh like things have been kind of dying down You know, like Mm -hmm. the hardcore leftist shit is kind of like everyone's kind of being like, yeah, okay, you had your time, but like we kind of want to get back to normal now. And then like the extreme right is just kind of like even the conservatives are like, all right, yeah, Trump, it's like we don't like him anymore. Like you guys can just kind of whatever. And so the fanatics are getting kind of like pushed aside by everyone else. And I love seeing that on a collective level Mm -hmm. because I think that's really fucking needed. And I'm hoping it can lead to a certain kind of integration. And so I'm just really kind of pushing my work as hard as I can as a framework to to help people develop that because I it's literally saved my life and gave me my life back and I would love to see what it could do on a collective level.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that that's I mean, ultimately that's like all that you can do. I mean, if you want to talk into a political standpoint, right, you could go vote, you can protest, and you do those things. But at the end of the day, like you got to take care of your own level of integration and work and then you can start to hopefully affect and help others and honestly it's a lot of my own personal hope with with this podcast and what i'm seeing with some of the other podcasts coming out there is like you're it's creating a space for more dialogue and conversation and less argument like i every single time i see somebody on twitter challenge somebody to a debate or like have a debate things like i don't want to see people debate man like i don't like the point of a debate is to win and that doesn't lead us anywhere. Yeah. Like I want to see two people have a conversation, like understand differences and work to a new conclusion together. You know, and that is exciting to me because that's where we make a progress conversation. Right? You and I had, yeah, exactly, yeah, hundred percent, yeah. That was super, super meaningful to me, and it sounds like you got a lot out of it as well. So I'm, I'm super yeah. grateful. And, and now we're here, right? And that's that's the key part because now we can move forward together versus it being like, oh well, there's that person, there's this person, and that's how we're gonna do stuff. So, yeah, man, love it, love it, love it, love it. Awesome, man. Well, this has been such, such a fun conversation, Chris. I have absolutely loved this. Uh, thank you so much, so much for coming on the show. Where can, actually, I know where people can find more about you, which is Operation Moksha, And that is the one question that I did not get answered yet. So I need yeah. to have this answer before we sign up. So what is Operation Moksha? What does that name come from? It sounds like it's uh, Russian, potentially, uh, but I believe it maybe yeah, has Indian so uh, traits. It's Sanskrit. Moksha yeah. is a Sanskrit word.
1: So Sanskrit, uh, a means liberation in uh, Sanskrit, okay. but it has two distinct definitions. It, it can mean liberation from the wheel of reincarnation, mm-hmm. but it can also mean liberation from the false personality. Mm-hmm. And so that's the context I mean it in. And so literally, it's an operation, a plan, a mission to liberate the world from the false personality. But it's also a play on words because one of the bands that inspired me the most as a kid was Operation Ivy. And they have a particular song called Unity that inspired me a lot as a kid because I got into Unity ideas when I was a little kid. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Operation Ivy really inspired me, which is cool because like, one of my favorite bands is Rancid, and this was two of their members in high school. And they were just as good in high school. And they have this song called Unity, and it's about unity between everyone. Because back mm-hmm. in the day, especially uh, earlier, you know, 80s 70s whatever there was a lot of like racial tension in the punk rock scene Mm -hmm. like because like if you ever listen to ska they have like the black and white checkers Mm -hmm. and that actually stands for racial unity because they were some of the first Ah. musicians to ever have black and white people play together and so the two-tone movement largely comes from the two different skin tones making music together and that's where the checkers come from and so there would be different bands playing and then you would have like this mixed group, but then you'd also have the skins and the Nazi punks, and they would all show up to the same thing. And eventually somebody would die. And that's what the song ghost town by the specials is about. It's about nobody going to the showing the show anymore. Cause you could get fucking killed. And it obviously was a big thing in the scene. And so operation Ivy comes out with this song called unity. And it's the first and only song I've ever heard about unifying everyone it's not just like we all everybody on my team needs to be united against this thing it's like no let's just all of us decide to unite because the whole thing is about i don't want people to die anymore i don't want there to be any fighting i don't want there to be unnecessarily con unnecessary conflict like yes you might hate some people and you might hate some people but like do we all really want to fucking die like no like if, if you gotta hate hate i don't give a shit whatever but like we're gonna get along mm-hmm. and I'm obviously paraphrasing because it's a punk rock song. And they didn't flesh that sure. out all that yeah. much. But that's the impression I got from it. And that was really inspiring to me. Yeah. And so the name Operation Moksha also comes from that intention. And it's also a fusion between my punk rock influence and my like Eastern philosophy influence. Because one is a okay. punk rock word from Operation Ivy and the other is a Sanskrit word. So it's like layered and all hmm. these different things.
0: Very cool, awesome, Chris. Well, thank you for so much for sharing. Again, uh, you can find Chris at Operation Moksha on YouTube and on Instagram. Uh, Chris, anywhere else people can follow you, or anybody, where else you want people to lead to? Yeah,
1: yeah. The timing is perfect on this because I just finished my website this week. Oh, perfect. So it's operationmoksha.com, and just so you know, it's operation, just like the normal word, and then M O K S H A. So that's how you spell Moksha. Then um, and go on there. It'll have access to all my socials. It'll have access to my online courses. You can buy, it'll show you how to get coaching from me. Testimonials, tell you more about me and my work, what shadow integration actually is and everything you might need to know.
0: Perfect. Yeah. And you, Chris has a great, uh, great YouTube channel it has a lot of great, awesome videos on there. So if you want to dive into this stuff and just access a lot of that material, it's totally online and available. And, uh, Chris, this has been so, so, so much fun. I'll probably have to have you back so we can uh, continue some of these cool conversations and stuff. Or Yeah, uh, out. Yeah, awesome. So it was great, great well, having I you. I want to go
1: deeper on anime.
0: I know, I know. <laughs> we got to go deeper on anime. There's a lot of things that we could have gone uh, into at all. And we didn't talk about video games at all, which I'm a huge gamer as well. So definitely yeah. talk about that. All right, Chris. Well, it was a blast having you on and I'll, I'll talk to you again soon. Yeah, it's an honor. Thank you so much, man. My pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Getting to Know You. If you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as I did in making it for you, please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. It would really help the show out. Additionally, if you'd like to stay in touch, consider following me on Instagram at Cam Edward Benton. That's Cam-C-A-M-E-D-W-A-R-D-B-E-N-T-O-N. On Instagram and YouTube if you want to follow the show on there as well. Once again, thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening, for taking the time, for being curious. It means the absolute world to me, so thank you from the bottom of my heart.